You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory-smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your Crave. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Omid Malakhan, crypto genius extraordinaire. Your book is the best book I've ever read about Bitcoin. Rearchitecting Trust, The Curse of History, and The Crypto Cure for Money, Markets, and Platforms. We've been promising to talk about this book for several sessions in a row, but now I've read it and we finally get a chance to talk about it. So welcome on the podcast once again. Thank you, James. And that's quite a compliment coming from you because you've been in crypto for quite a while now and I'm sure come across lots of crypto books. Well, what, what I like about this book is that A, you explain from the ground up the history of money and uh, we'll dive a little deeper into that because there's some twists that I didn't expect. And you show how Bitcoin is a natural evolution of money. And many authors, including myself, have done this before, but I, I like the very unique stance you take and, and it kind of underlines why Bitcoin is not only a natural evolution, but a necessary evolution. And you're able to explain all of these complicated things ranging from DeFi to decentralized autonomous organizations to what a store of value is, all these complicated things that people have trouble with but you do it in a very simple manner. It's very easy to understand. So all together as a, as a people should read this, if they want to really understand what Bitcoin is with a capital B and what cryptocurrencies are and potentially what the future uh, where this, what direction this is going. But of course I have questions. Please let's get into it. So one thing you really explain well is the relationship, and I never really thought about it this way, although it's kind of obvious in hindsight, is the relationship between trust and money. Like all through history, I can't give you something in exchange for a product or service unless I can trust that I can use what you give me to turn around to someone else and buy another product and service. I have to trust that what you give me has basically similar value to what I'm giving you, what I'm selling you. Yeah. Uh, the funny thing about money is perhaps more than anything else in society, it is primarily a trust building mechanism. It exists because without money, um, you know, a lot of people think about barter economies. This is There are two theories as to the origins of money. One is that, well, there were these barter economies, but they were so unbelievably inefficient because like Everyone has to price everything in every good and you don't know what to, like, do you store in grain or do you store in wine? 
um, and what's like the price of labor and how do you convert that to land. Um, the funny thing with money is it's so old that nobody actually knows what existed before it. It's prehistoric in that sense. The other theory about the origin of money that I would speculate is more likely to be true is the credit theory of money that says there was no barter just because barter can't really scale. Instead, people did favors for each other. You know, like I'm going to work for you today and you promise to um, give me something in exchange for it tomorrow. Or um, I'm going, to, I need, I'm a farmer. I need a tool to be able to plant seeds. So I'm going to get that on credit with the promise that when my seeds result in grain, I will give the person who sold me the tool some of that grain. So that's a trust-based system entirely now. And the problem with that is that really doesn't scale across time or space. So money was probably invented as a clearing mechanism or a way to like settle trust. Like instead of all these promises ranging between different people in a community, they just occasionally pass some physical object or increasingly bit of data and that allows them to introduce trust into every other economic activity. So let's talk about the physical object because that's how it started. Like let's say a metal. So you're you're going to sell me some a pair of shoes. You make shoes. You're going to sell me a pair of shoes, and I'm going to give you a little piece of silver for it. And that's arguably like the first kind of, um, I don't know, like money platform. Or it was probably precious metals like gold and silver and bronze and so on. And even there, you need to trust that if I'm giving you silver, that the silver isn't just silver on the outside and like nickel on the inside or something. And and so so it's not that trust is built into the system, it's that lack of trust is built into the system. Like everybody who accepted money had to buy a scale so they could weigh to make sure that one ounce of silver equals one ounce of silver. Right. Uh, and that it's like introduces two problems to every negotiation. You need to negotiate on the deal and then you need to negotiate on the money, um, which was the perfect setup. And by the way, the scale thing is, um, this is something you can see in the names of many of our modern currencies. So in uh, biblical times, there was a unit of weight called the shekel. So like Abraham paid some number of shekels of silver to buy a burial plot for his wife. Uh, and today, in the state of Israel, their currency is the new shekel. In Roman times, there was a popular standard of mass called the Libra Pondo. And that's where we get everything from the Italian or formerly Italian, currently Turkish lira, the French livre, the British pound, even actually the hashtag symbol ah. comes, goes back to that. Um, but this was a fundamental problem, which led to one of the earliest and most important innovations with money, which was to introduce standards. And the simplest way to create a standard is to make a coin. Because now if you say, well, this is a gold coin or a silver coin, and it's generally agreed that it has X amount of silver, it becomes a lot easier to do business. But then that raises a question of who should issue that coin. Because it wouldn't work if everybody just issued their own coin. Right. Or although... Even if like, I mean, this is why uh, uh, counterfeiting was punishable by death back in like, you know, the Roman Empire. Like if you minted, your, if you made your own coin with Julius Caesar on it and you said, oh, this is the whatever, 
uh, and you were it was really forged because or or, or fraudulent because you you had inside a different kind of metal, you could be put to death. Right. And even before then, um, there's this fascinating thing with the history of money that for convenience reasons, society decides to make a trade-off. But that trade-off then changes the trust framework. So to, it would be very convenient if everybody in the economy just trusted a single coin, right? So then who's going to issue that coin? Well, it should be the leader who, among other things, has the power to put people to death has the scale to build the mints to create the coins, uh, and then is going to put like you know their their face or likeness on that coin as sort of like a stamp of trustworthiness. That works, but the problem with it is this recurring theme throughout history, which is that it puts the issuer in a position to become a free rider. Because now the issuer is like, well, I'm issuing these coins, everybody's using them, they kind of have to, if they don't, I might kill them or punish them otherwise. But what if instead of making them 100% silver, I make them 95% silver, right? And then the other 5% I keep for myself. Um, and that introduces the manifestation of a loss of trust in a currency, which is inflation. And history has been full of it usually because some trusted issuer of a coin starts diluting the content to finance a war or imperialism or something. And and no one ever uh, really makes the coin stronger. <laughs> like, they never put more gold in the coin. Right. And, and, and even up to modern days, like, look, what's the reason we got off the gold standard with Nixon and, and Bretton Woods is because uh, we couldn't really finance the debt of the Vietnam War using the gold we had in the ground. So we had to take the, the dollar off the gold standard, it's hence the inflation of the 70s. But, which again, is all about trust. Like we, Some group of people probably trusted that Nixon would never do that, and some people trusted that it would be okay if he did that. And you know that debate still rages on. But, and, and it goes beyond even money, because they never thought about this too. You have this quote in the book that contracts are dumb. And it makes sense. Like if you and I make a contract, like, oh man, you're, I'm going to pay you $50,000 up front and you're going to build my house. You could take the $50,000 and if I, you know, let's say I made a bad deal and I just wire it to you up front, like, oh, I'm happy to pay you up front. And then you just walk away. We had a contract. So sue me is the common phrase people say, <laughs> because you, you could, you could break a contract. You just have to be willing to be sued. And so that's part of, a contract actually is that you're willing to be sued if you break it, and uh, uh, so contracts themselves, you they, you think oh it's a binding contract. It's not really binding because you have to go to a court to bind it. And I mean you're in New York City right now, uh, the eviction courts are overflowing because uh, so many people are just staying in their apartments without paying right now. But it doesn't matter that they all sign binding contracts. Those are made to be contracts are made to be broken, but this starts leading up to crypto or or smart contracts is that they're self they those contracts enforce themselves which i never thought about smart contracts in that context but that's part of money because every almost every contract has to do with money i would say every contract has to do with money of some sort yeah you can even take almost any kind of financial product and say that what is it it is a contract that has conditions that result in the movement of money so you know, whether it's a landlord deal, but think about like a bond, right? What is a bond? You give someone money, they give you interest. 
um, and then hopefully they pay you back someday. A cup of coffee, a, a menu. I see uh, it's a cup of co- a, a cup of coffee is four dollars. That's kind of a contract in a very simplified sense. Yeah, um, and as you said earlier, until the invention of blockchain, there were two problems with contracts. And, and mind you, like in a historic, in a broad historical context, contracts were an amazing innovation, and they're fascinating tidbits about in the book about like the kind of crazy stuff that people would do even to prevent someone from for changing the text of a contract after the fact. Um, but all contracts have a problem of interpretation and a problem of execution. So just because two people agree on the language doesn't mean that their interpretation will always be the same. A lot of what the legal system does is try to figure out which interpretation makes sense. And ultimately, all enforcement, like you said, is done after the fact. Right? You trust that somebody doesn't break the contract, but they can. And then when they do, you have to go to court and sue them, and that costs money and takes time. The innovation with smart contracts, which admittedly is not the best term because actually most blockchain contracts, they're not like your lease agreement. right? They are conditional payments that say, if X, Y, and Z happen, then this transaction will result. But that's a very powerful innovation because one, smart contracts are written in code, and in code there are no interpretation problems. There might be bugs, but like you can find them ahead of time. Uh, and then the execution happens in what we call, what we discussed in the previous discussions, in trustless fashion. So if you and I use a smart contract to facilitate some interaction between us, could be almost anything, then one, there's no room for different interpretations because code is code. And then two, I don't have to trust you and you don't have to trust me and we don't have to trust the middleman. The trust framework of the blockchain will monitor the conditions and then when they trigger, um, enforce what the contract said, which usually means some asset gets transferred from you to me or vice versa. So, so you've, you've, in just the past few minutes, you've mentioned some huge institutions involved with making money and essentially enforcing money. Money is basically just the mechanism by which contracts are not enforced, but executed. So a contract is executed when the money changes hands and the serve and the product for, for some product or service. So you've mentioned you need a leader who has the financial resources to mint lots of money and distribute it and kill people if there's counterfeiting <laughs> and uh, you know invade countries if their supply of money is dwindling but the other country has more money and kill you if you don't pay ta- your taxes to support the mechanism of government and and then and then you need an entire judicial system lawyers to write contracts that can't be misinterpreted judges to decide when there's a contract that's been broken and then police to then enforce you know the the fulfill the execution of a contract if the party still won't execute you know and then jails in some cases to further enforce like so this entire like basically all of society has been set up not because money is trustworthy, but because money and contracts have not been trustworthy. These are all risk uh, uh, ways to reduce the risk of money. So, so basically the way to reduce risk is to have a strong army and the ability to use it on your own citizens, a strong police force, great lawyers uh, uh, and honest lawyers, and great judges, uh, again, great police, and 
and all you know, accountants and banks and so on in between to kind of handle the moving of money from one place to another or the counting of money in the case of taxes or profits or whatever. So you need these gigantic trillion dollar, multi-trillion, quadrillion dollar institutions to basically have money. All of this is just set up so that I could buy a pair of shoes from you. Yeah, pretty much. And you just did a good job of explaining a lot of that architecture is really old. Like the way so much of the existing financial system is designed is not that different if you go back certainly 50 years. In some cases, 150 years. Right? Like electronic payments were originally innovated by Western Union, which was, people might not know, at one point the most the biggest telecommunication com company in America because they had a national telegram network. And it wasn't that long until someone was like, wait, if we can send electronic messages across the nation, we can do payments, right? One person goes to a Western Union location, deposits 10 bucks, and then a telegram, you know, beep, 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 says, all right, across the country to the other Western Union branch, we'll give the recipient $10. We got the money. That's how most fintechs work. <laughs> they might use cloud technology um, and AI and some other digital services, but the architecture is exactly the same. What's interesting about a lot of different blockchain applications for money and payments and DeFi and everything is that this is a digitally native architecture. It's just a more sensible way to build trust in a world where everybody has a smartphone and everything runs 24 seven and we have software and we can automate so much of our financial activity. And I think, I think this is something people don't really understand is that is the order. And this is what your book explains very well is that the order of things wasn't government first money. Second, it turns out it was money and transactions first and government second, basically to enforce that entire infrastructure. And that's a little bit simplistic. I don't know if it's a hundred percent true, but a lot of people say, oh, you, it can't be money unless a government accepts it as taxes. And, and that's like the wrong direction of looking at it. Like we're paying the government taxes in order to set up the infrastructure to basically mon monitor our money. Indeed. And not the other way around. And if you spend some time reading up the history of money, the one thing that you learn is that it's very dynamic and it has evolved drastically over the years and sometimes very differently in different places. So I think it's very ironic that when this question comes up of like, is Bitcoin money? And I, I spent some time on this in the book because a lot of central bankers will come out and say like, Bitcoin can't be money. Money is, you know, fiat currency that's issued and managed by a central bank and backed by the asset side of their balance sheet. You know, how money structured today? The irony of that claim is that design for money, as you alluded to earlier, only goes back to the 1970s. So here you have a human creation that's been around for like 10,000 years. We are currently using a version of it that's been around for 50 and you have these central bankers saying, well, it can never be different again. Right? Bitcoin can't be money because it's not what it is today, which then 
I asked the question, like, is there anything in human history that the way it's been for the you know 0.01% of the years is the only way it could ever be ever again, regardless of technological or social progress? Well, let me let me ask about that because yes, the nature of how government controls money has changed, but has there ever been a time when there was a money or a currency that wasn't backed by a government? Yes, there have actually been many instances of that, not so much recently. And by the way, there are good reasons why you would want a government to be in charge of a currency, because the hardest thing to do with any kind of money is to get people to trust it. Uh, so it actually helps that you have governments that, assuming they do a good job, which is a big assumption, but assuming that they do, they're doing things like managing the supply of it. And every currency requires its own network effects. So one way to give a currency network effects is to make it legal tender. Legal tender means that people have to accept it for the resolution of contractual agreement. Governments can also collect taxes in a currency. They pay their salaries in their currencies. And I wouldn't diminish the importance of that because the one area where I disagree with a lot of other pro-crypto people is they want to throw away 10,000 years of history or at least the last 50 years of it. And there, there are important reasons why the monetary system evolved to be what it is today. But there are these, even in modern times, there are these interesting examples of times where there's money that a government is not involved. Um, one of the assignments we give my students in my class is a famous account of the kinds of money that World War II prisoners developed uh, in POW camps, because there was no other money and they needed something. Um, and alternatively, the machinations around gold, silver, right? Even the history of government-issued fiat money is very rich. There have been times where governments have issued very hard money that they say, our money is gold, period. We just will turn it into a coin. There have been other times where governments say, well, we're not going to do that. We're going to hold some gold, and then we're going to issue paper receipts against it. Um, and then sometimes they say, ah, you know what, forget the gold. We're just going to go with the paper receipts. And then in many instances, the paper receipts ends up becoming highly inflationary and worthless. And then that government says, okay, we're going to go back to gold now. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I, I lived in over 100 or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period, and I loved it. I, loved, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs, and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests and having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away. And I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny 
hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I remember last year I was asked to go speak at the Norway Business Summit, and I was so excited because side by side with the Business Summit was the Norway Chess Summit, where I would get to see in person Magnus Carlsen, the best chess player ever, playing chess. But it was four plane rides, like to get to the city that ultimately I would go to. So I really did not want to fly for 14 hours, and they they were willing to pay for everything for me. So. I, I, at first class. So I didn't want to fly for 14 hours and not be first class. So I had to hurry up and get on the phone immediately to get those first class tickets to a chess tournament in Norway. And listen, this is just like when, you know, you have to know when you want the best of anything, you have to act quickly or someone else will get it instead. And I did not want those seats to fill up. So it's like, if you're hiring for your business, you want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. I just was talking to a friend this morning where he was trying to decide between some programmers and he waited a little too long and both the programmers he was interviewing took other jobs, like great jobs. So, you know, what's the best way then to hire the best as quickly as possible? Zip Recruiter. Zip Recruiter finds qualified candidates fast. And right now you could try it for free at ziprecruiter.com slash James. Just try it and see. You'll you'll find out. So ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology takes center stage to identify the top talent for your roles. Immediately after you post your job, ZipRecruiter's smart technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I know this because one time I signed up as an employee, potential employee on ZipRecruiter and I got nonstop really, I was, even though obviously I wasn't looking for a job, I love what I do, but I just wanted to see what would happen because they were a, a, a sponsor of my podcast and the most interesting jobs would pop up in my emails like, hey, you're qualified for this or that. And so it's interesting to see. So just just go there and try it. Try ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Amp up your hiring performance. Now, this is more for if you're hiring, but amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. I even saw on Twitter today, which is of course a fount of factual and <laughs> rational information. So I always go there. Someone said all money is a form of debt. And that's just simply not true. Like, as you mentioned, like hard money, like gold 
someone saying this gold is now official money, that's not debt. This is the gold. It's the money. But a dollar bill, though, traditionally, at least initially, was an IOU from, let's say, the U.S. government. Hey, I owe you a dollar of gold, but I'm never going to pay it to you. Just trust me that this is worth a dollar of gold. Yeah, even today, actually, a dollar bill say Federal Reserve note on them. It's still debt. It's just debt that's backed by a promise of the central bank not issuing too much and keeping certain assets backing it. I wish I had a dollar bill actually on me right now because there are so many bullshit things on a dollar bill that indicate that we're scared to death that we, people won't trust it. Like if you think about it, there's there's George Washington, the most, supposedly he never lies, so he's the most trustworthy human who ever lived. And then there's like all these symbols, you know, there's the signature of the treasurer and the secretary of treasury. And there's, uh, uh, you know, all this imagery of, uh, you know, that this is legal tender and it's like written in this great font. And then on the back of a dollar bill, there's an eagle with the flag. And, and there's, but if you don't believe in that, there's also a pyramid with an eye. <laughs> <laughs> which for some reason makes people trust it. Like I, or, you know, what, what's the pyramid with the eye for? I actually don't know. Uh, it's a good question. I do know that it says in God, we trust. Um, and this varies. Right, right. So just in case you don't trust George Washington, you got to trust God. You got to trust God. And this currency so. somehow goes back to God. Yeah. It's a fascinating thing. And it's all about trust, right? In England, they still have the queen's head. Um, it used to say like, redeemable. Yeah, in every, in every uh, country. Yeah. And this this goes back to ancient times, and even like the first um, one of the first metal coins was it was a um, alloy of gold and silver issued by the ancient Lydians in present day Turkey, and that had like I don't remember if it was the the stamp of the leader or a lion or something. So all of this goes back to this idea of trust. But the point I try to get across in the book is that trust by this by definition or by history is cyclical because the more trustworthy anything becomes, could be a currency, could be an institution, could be Twitter, by the way, which I do delve into, into the book of the decline of trust in social media. The more trustworthy any framework becomes, then the greater the, the incentive for somebody else to take advantage of it. That there is this ultimate free rider problem that if you have a currency that is very trusted by everyone, then the incentive grows for the central bank or the issuer to just inflate it. You know, ergo, the Federal Reserve's balance sheet has gone parabolic uh, since the financial crisis because everybody trusts dollars, right? Well, if you think about it, like all the big institutions we mentioned earlier, the quadrillion dollars worth of institutions have all been corrupt at some point or other. So, or not corrupt, but at least not trustworthy. So you refer in the book, you refer to something called seniorage where uh, governments used to, uh, you know, spike their gold coins with some other metal when they wanted to devalue it or, or the U or the U S government, when they printed up $4 trillion, uh, $4 trillion in 2020, then there's this court system, which mediates on transactions or contracts. You know, there are plenty of examples of corrupt judges that could get bribe to uh, give a certain result. There's also been corrupt police who get paid off to allow certain illicit transactions. There's corrupt accountants who steal the money 
you give them to manage it and pay the IRS. They pay themselves. I'm not saying all people are bad, but I'm just saying this has occurred many times. They're, 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 and not only that, then when I send you money, um, there's so many intermediaries that all take a fee in the middle. There's this natural inflation in the system. You mentioned last time that the, the global payment system is a $3 trillion a year uh, system. So, so there's all this both bullshit and inflation built into a monetary system, a, a global complex monetary system like the world will has now and will always probably have. Yeah, and the all of these are institutions of trust, one way or another. The central bank, the payment intermediaries, the stock exchanges, and ultimately the um, fees that they charge for that they provide is the cost of trust. And we pay that fee because it's better than not, right? Like obviously, right. So so we pay taxes which pay for a lot of these institutions. We pay local taxes, which pay for the police force. We pay for accountants. We pay for lawyers. We pay for mediators uh, and on and on and on. Right. You know, we pay for Visa and Amex and, and payment systems and so on. Exactly, which then begs the question, and, and the, there's the payment that's one problem, right? The payment is okay when things are going well, but then what happens is that the exploitation of trust eventually reaches a point of crisis. So in a currency, that's when you hit the point of high inflation. In a financial system, it's a financial crisis. Right? Like what happened in 2008 globally was a collapse in trust in intermediaries, which happened because we trusted them too much. You know, if, if people had been more skeptical of the Lehman Brothers of the world, then they never would have gotten to the point where they could have collapsed the entire financial system. And, and it's so funny. The thing that stopped the financial crisis was not that all of a sudden we trusted the Lehman Brothers of the world, but we simply changed the rules back to what they were before, which is that there's FASB, I believe it's FASB 157 was the specific rule, which basically, you know, changed during the financial crisis and they changed it back. And it basically said, okay, okay, okay. We're sorry, Mr. Bank. You can now value your assets however you want once again, <laughs> as opposed to accurately valuing it, which is what caused the financial collapse. Most people don't know that one rule being changed and then changed back completely bookended the financial crisis. Mm. Yeah, good point. And so there's the government doing something at the expense of what you could argue is like the trustworthiness of the overall system going forward. And the other way that the financial crisis was brought to a halt was with quantitative easing and low interest rates. So the US and many other governments decided to violate trust in currency in order to preserve trust temporarily in the banking system. And in some ways, we've been paying the price for that ever since. And it's no coincidence that Bitcoin and blockchain and the whole thing comes out of that era because certain innovative creative people went and looked and said wait there's got to be a better way to build trust and what i try to argue in the book is that in many ways this is what the crypto and blockchain approach represents it is that better way that takes into account all of the lessons of history and the fact that technology enables new ways of building integrity into a financial system that didn't exist before. And what blows me away actually is the way you, you I say you because you, you explained it, but the way 
cryptocurrencies, or let's say Bitcoin combined with Ethereum, integrate money as both a payment system and a contract system. When actually, as when I finish your book, they're the same thing, really. Like every payment is essentially the fulfillment of either a simple contract or a more complicated contract, and it, it bakes the enforcement into it. So it wipes out the need for for all these institutions that we've been kind of led to believe for a gazillion years that we need them in order for money to work. Yeah, and let's take it a step further, right? Here in, in developed countries in the West, whatever gripes you and I may have about the fees that intermediaries charge and what happened in 2008, at least there is a system and it works most of the time, right? Part of the reason we've achieved so much prosperity uh, is because of the viability of the financial system. There's this counterintuitive idea that like people often in in art and literature associate banking with like oppression and evil, but really it's the lack of reliable financial services that keeps people poor. That's why if you go to any um, market where there's a decent enough financial system, there's a high living standard. There are many countries in the world that don't have a financial system and they may not have it because they don't have a good legal system. The fascinating thing about something like Bitcoin is, to your point, you get all of those things in one. You get a currency, which could be used as a store of value or medium of exchange, and you get a payment system, and you get a legal system. Because given the whole Bitcoin design, if I go and I want to send you some coins, the blockchain and the ecosystem provides all these assurances that that transaction will happen, even if there is no bank and even if there is no government around. And I think that's a remarkable achievement for the something like two to three billion people in the world that don't have access to reliable financial services. So, okay, I buy into all this. And let's say there are some open questions like, is will Bitcoin be the winner in terms of which cryptocurrency, let's say there's a buck, a basket of cryptocurrencies, but which ones will be used as a payment system? Which ones will we use to save money? You know, sometimes that's called a store of value. Which ones like Ethereum will be used to make smart contracts and so on. Uh, and you discussed this a little in the book, but I'm going to be a little bit of a skeptic now. You know, there's all these cryptocurrencies out there that have different specific use cases. So for instance, LVMH, the fashion clothing, you know, purse, scarf maker, whatever, they put uh, this cryptocurrency called VeChain in Gavinci bags so that uh, they put a chip with the currency on it or with a token on it. Right. And if you have a Gavinci bag, you know, it's real. It's not, you didn't buy, if you buy it in Chinatown from some street vendor, you know, it's real because it has one of these chips with VeChain in it and the VeChain blockchain can't be, you know, blockchain for various mathematical reasons can't be forged or faked. But my question is, you know, so people buy and sell these, and I'm using VeChain as a specific example, as a, a, a why, why do those have value? Why do these like very why aren't they just software projects? Why is VeChain also sometimes considered, and, and again, I'm just using this as an example. There's thousands of currency, cryptocurrencies out there with different use cases, but they all seem to be traded like currencies. Is VeChain, should it be traded like a, like a, like a currency? 
I actually haven't looked at VeChain in years, but the last time I did, uh, it was actually a what we call a permissioned blockchain, meaning it wasn't as open and decentralized as something like Bitcoin or Ethereum. Which, when that's the case, I'm always like, just just make a database, you know, don't do away with the pretense of a currency yeah. and a token. And that's that's valid. I, I think the one thing people should keep in mind is that this is a new industry, so. Every project should be treated like a startup, even Bitcoin, right? Bitcoin is 12 years old now or so. That's not that long. Like how old is Amazon now, right? The, the, the Amazon's what, 30 years old or something? And it's still like mostly looked at as a newer yeah, it's company. probably about 25 years old. Yeah, and, and most of the other coins out there are a lot younger than 12 years old. Right? They might be five years old, three years old, six months, whatever. Almost by definition, in any industry, the vast majority of startups will fail, particularly the first phase. When there's so much that hasn't been figured out yet, like the proper economics, the proper model, and in many cases, society might not be ready. So while I support all the experimentation going on, all the crazy stuff that's going on in crypto, I think it's important to remember that ultimately these are startups and there's a lot we haven't figured out yet, and we're only going to figure them out because people will try things and fail. And then new innovators will learn from those mistakes and build better things. Right, but like in the case of, you know, I could use VeChain, I could use many other coins, but I'll, I'll stick with this example. There is some value there because it performs a function that people are willing to pay for. Like I'm willing to pay a little bit extra on the price of a GaVinci bag if I know it's real. Yeah. And I know it's real because of, this coin. The coin itself, I don't know what economics back it to give it value other than like maybe you can use it to then buy a bag. I don't know. Um, or, or whatever other use cases it has. Maybe you can use it for those use cases. But, uh, but I do start to wonder like why does anything have value other than, other than let's say Bitcoin and Ethereum? Like I need to buy Ethereum in order to create smart contracts. I need to use Bitcoin because maybe that's the payment system, but everything else, can it be just built with software using a blockchain? Like, can I just make, if I'm a company, I'll just make my own private blockchain to do some function. Like, let's say I want to transmit healthcare data around. I could use some public blockchain or I can build my own blockchain that doesn't have a currency associated with it. And everybody just uses that. I agree with you. I am actually um, something of a, of a, source of value maximalist, meaning like you have to really go out of your way to prove to me that some digital currency actually has a source of value. And the simplest way to do that a lot of times is someone comes in and says, I have this blockchain solution, blah, 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 and it has a coin. Uh, I will ask them, well, would your solution work if you take out the coin? I actually believe I once asked this question to a biz dev person from VeChain, and not surprisingly, he didn't have a good answer. And that doesn't mean the technology is bad. It doesn't mean the cryptography is bad. It just means that you don't need a no, coin. No, it doesn't even mean the value of it is bad. Like it might be that there's enough demand. Like LVAMH, for instance, has to buy V chains for every bag they make. But and and they decided to do that instead of making their own internal system. So that makes V chain have some value. I, I hate beating up on V chain because I actually think it's a really innovative coin and idea. But uh, but I, um, it really applies to everything. Like, like Render is a token which uses decentralized computing to render 3D graphics. 
Disney used it for, for instance, rendering the the opening of Ant Man and Captain Marvel, and you have to buy render tokens to use it to render graphics. So there's there's some value, um, but it's not necessarily currency value. Right, and actually now that we have stable coins, right, we have fiat currency on the blockchain, and it's wildly popular. Um, in fact, it, it's really like beyond Bitcoin, arguably like the first killer application of blockchain is moving dollars around the world and giving people access to dollars that they didn't have and enabling programmable dollars, which is very cool. So there are also solutions where it's like, could you just pay dollars? And if you could, and in some cases it might be preferred, you should. Where a solution needs a coin is if the existence of that coin is fundamental to securing that solution. So we could not run the Bitcoin network on dollars. The, the fundamental trust framework of Bitcoin is built on this idea that miners spend money in their local currency, fiat currency, and then they get paid in Bitcoins. So their incentives are aligned. They want the price of Bitcoin to go up or at least not go down. Um, and there are other kinds of applications where this circular math is important. You need a coin, it needs to have value because that's what gets people to do what you want them to do. There are also other situations where you say, well, that's suboptimal because coins are volatile and, and pure coins and difficult to comprehend. So uh, I think we're going to see more and more projects that say we use some version of this technology, but to the extent that fees need to be paid or someone needs to be rewarded for providing a service, they will be paid in a stable coin. But to your point, though, is that I might not trust the stable coin is ultimately based, let's say the stable coin for the U.S. dollar is ultimately based on the value of the U.S. dollar. So I still have to trust, um, you know, whether the central bank uh, and Congress is making appropriate laws and policies around the value of the dollar. Whereas with Bitcoin, the economics of Bitcoin are in the code. So I don't have to trust any humans so again, I don't have to go through the banking system with stable coins, but the value of a stable coin is still based on this free rider issue, whereas there's various institutions in the middle can decide, oh, we don't want the value of the coin to be this, we want it to be that. Yep, there are actually two. One, you have to rely on the issuer. So if you own a dollar stable coin, you're trusting that the Fed won't inflate it away, which it kind of has been. You also, most of the stable coins are designed because they're backed by a reserve of cash in a bank. So you're trusting that reserve to exist. You're trusting the issuer to not do anything fuddy-duddy with that reserve, like you know, go gamble it away or, or buy Bitcoin with it or something. And you're trusting that they won't deny you access because with a stablecoin, they can. With Bitcoin, it's purely censorship resistant. Nobody can deny anyone access. But with a stablecoin, actually all the big ones have mechanisms in place to comply with laws and regulations where you might own a million dollars worth of a token and then the issuer might say, James, we're freezing your tokens or we're confiscating your tokens. So I agree with you. Um, there are many ways in which stable coins are suboptimal, um, but there are other instances where they're not. And to me, what actually matters is the infrastructure, right? Like stable coins cannot exist without a decentralized blockchain like Ethereum. And Ethereum would not be decentralized if it wasn't secured by a native free-floating currency like ETH. So one way or another, you're going to need both.
Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. One problem that the stablecoin solves that the dollar doesn't solve without the stablecoin is the smart contract issue. Mm. So stablecoins allow you to take dollars and use them in smart contracts. So it solves kind of half the equation we've been talking about earlier. There's there's kind of like, does this, do we, we trust it has value as a currency, but we also now make contracts smart instead of dumb. So stable coins, we can't trust the value of the currency, but we can use them now as smart contract in smart contracts. And Ethereum is a, essentially a programming language to build smart contracts. So as an example, let's take insurance. You can, using Ethereum, you can make a, an insurance company. So let's say you want to ensure that, um, you know, there's not going to be a hurricane that destroys your house and, and you put, you, you buy that insurance smart contract with stable coins. And now, so now it's in the blockchain and now some Ethereum powered blockchain sees on the map that your house has been destroyed by a hurricane. It, it triggers the smart contract and money is automatically released to you. So there's no insurance company, there's no judges, there's no paperwork, there's no, you know, calling for months, like, where's my money? It's just automatically happens on the smart contract. Do I really need Ethereum for that? Or I could just build an insurance company with my own blockchain. Well, but then if it's your own blockchain, it has, it, it's not truly trustless. It becomes trusted in some ways. And there are private blockchains. In fact, a lot of big companies have plowed a lot of money into private blockchains. We haven't seen much as far as adoption is concerned. Um, and compared to what we have today, in many ways, a private blockchain is better. It's just not best. But like, here's an example. Like, I could be wrong, but like Walmart, for instance, uses Hyperledger Fabric, which I think was developed by IBM. It's like a private blockchain, enterprise blockchain and they use that to track supply chain. They don't use Bitcoin to track their supply chain or right. or some other currency. I believe they use this enterprise solution made by IBM. Yes, they do. Uh, and it's a network that them and their partners like the trucking companies um, run together, which again is better than whatever was before, which actually knowing how retail works was probably like people with paper clips faxing each other forms or something. Um, but that's a lim very limited use case, and you're eliminating a lot of the appeals of what you get from a blockchain, like the fact that they tend to be global, censorship-resistant, omni-asset. I think that's a very big one. What you mentioned about stablecoins being programmable, that gets really interesting when programmable dollars exist on a platform where you have a whole bunch of other things. Could be stocks, could be gold, could be NFTs, all in tokenized form. And now you can use smart contracts to automate how these things interact with each other, which from an innovation and trust building perspective is revolutionary. 
can Walmart on their private? But what do you mean? Give me give me an example. Um, so the most the dream of any financial system where people are trading one thing for another, like dollars for stocks, is what in traditional markets they call delivery versus payment. In crypto, we call them atomic swaps. Simplified as if you own something and I want to pay you for it, then you will only get paid if I pay you. It's guaranteed that way, right? Like think of like, you know, the cartoonish way of two people, one's trying to hand the other one money and the other one's trying to like get the necklace, right? Um, thousands, maybe not, but hundreds of years of financial innovation has been built around this idea of like, how do we guarantee that, that trade that either both people get what they want or no trade happens? And uh, the banking system goes through a lot of loops to try to arrange this, but ultimately it, it ends up happening only if you're like, well, we trust the New York Stock Exchange and its clearing system to make sure that happens. On Ethereum, you can literally write a line of code that this token will go from you to me if and only if that stable coin goes from me to you. And this is going to be very transformative because counter to the theme that you know crypto is all like wild west and dangerous and risky this is a way to build safety into the financial system it's a way to build resilience into the financial system there are so many crazy things that can and do go wrong like in 2008 where for example people stopped doing business with lehman brothers because they're like i don't know if they got the money that they need to pay me right like maybe i, I sell them something and they don't pay me so this is such a great point because like if it's a private blockchain built, you know, with some homegrown software, like software made by any company, there might be hacks and bugs and, you know, like Microsoft in Microsoft Windows, there there might be some vulnerability that was just discovered last week that, you know, so all your Windows systems are are breached and Ethereum's got like a million developers on it is is battle tested over the years. Like people are complaining now, oh, the Ethereum 2.0 is being delayed. It's being delayed because they're literally making it, the smartest developers in the world are literally making it perfect. And, uh, uh, you know, that's something that if you have just a private blockchain, any one private blockchain might have problems. And not that Ethereum won't have any problems, but there's multiples of additional developers working on it all around the world, testing it and so on. Now, IBM's Hyperledger might be perfect, but maybe Microsoft's blockchain solution might not be perfect. So if you kind of simplify this with something that's the most tested blockchain that everyone uses and is trusted, you solve this issue of having to trust thousands of different blockchains. Yeah, and um, even if it's not bugs, IBM could just turn off their solution or they can deny anyone they want access to their solution. That's actually why they keep it private in the first place, so they can control it. Um, so from a developer's point of view and a user's point of view, there's a lot of risk about going on any kind of private solution. Private blockchains, sure, but really like every other thing on the internet, right? We've talked before about like being canceled off of Twitter or having your bank fire you because you were dealing in penny stocks and they didn't like that. When you enter this blockchain domain, and say you're an innovator, you're an entrepreneur, you want to raise money and put in a lot of sweat equity and build an application of some kind that people will use. 
would you rather build it on a platform run by a corporation that can kick you out or be compelled by the government to kick you out? Or would you rather build on a decentralized platform like Ethereum where nobody has the power to kick you out? It's really interesting because it's, um, it's kind of like the evolution of Linux. So if people don't know, there was an operating system called Unix developed by AT&T, which basically ran the internet for decades, starting in the 70s. And that evolved into this open source software called Linux. The problem with Linux is it was open source. So you couldn't just call up a company to fix it like you could with Unix, you could call AT&T. So, but other companies became like front ends to Linux. Like if you needed help, you would call a company called Red Hat and they would fix your Linux issues. And so I sort of see what's happening is instead of me calling IBM to buy their Hyperledger project, maybe I'll call IBM to say, look, I need help using Theta and Render and VeChain with this solution I have. Can you work it out for me? So I'm not dependent on them giving me a bug-free coin, but I'm dependent on them just helping me build a front-end interface to it, like the easier part, really. Your example is actually, your analogy is even neater than you might know, because Hyperledger is a sister organization of the Linux Foundation, and it was founded on the same principle. <laughs> That's funny, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, so most of the internet, as you said, runs on free open source software. Why? Because it's decentralized, it's transparent. We wouldn't want to all like use an internet run by Amazon or Microsoft, because then again, they could fail, they could turn it off, they could censor, they could start charging for it. Um, blockchains like Bitcoin and Ethereum take that idea to the next level, because now it's not just data, but stores of value and contracts that are riding on there. Um, and I agree with you. I think in the long run, most people will only access this infrastructure through a corporation or some kind of a centralized service provider because there are many things about dealing with a blockchain directly that suck, for lack of a better word. There are many frictions and many uh, headaches and risks and the UI, UX is terrible. Um, however, I do think all of that will be built around the public permissions and list blockchain. And I think actually the IBMs of the world will eventually regret investing so many resources on the private blockchain implications and not the public ones. Well, it actually will follow the complete path of the internet. Like first IBM invested in their own private networks. Like I, I think CompuServe might've been a, a partnership between IBM and like Sears for some, uh, some, some weird company that they were partnered with to make like their own private internet. And then ultimately, they gave up on that to participate in the internet. And then ultimately, I think actually IBM bought Red Hat or they VA Linux. They bought, yeah. Like, so, yeah, some, some one of those companies. And so I think the analogy will, 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 will be correct. So, so let me ask you this, though. This is the big question. Well, first off, there's still a lot of people just saying these things have zero value. But as you've explained last podcast and this podcast, there's value there. But of course, people could choose to ignore that value and continue the same old ways they've always done things and hope for the best. What will be the catalyst where people finally say, you know what, we need this trust in, in our money, we need this trust in our contracts, we need this money in the way we account for things, you know, with this you know, public ledger system called the blockchain. What are gonna be the catalysts where people finally say, I don't want to hear, nobody says the internet is a fad anymore. And people were saying that up to 2005. 
What are going to be the catalysts where people stop saying this is a fad? I, if I had to limit it down to one, it's actually going to be time. I think it's just going to take time for some of this to get normalized. And we're seeing it. Like I think Bitcoin is actually, less people are saying Bitcoin is a fad now than five years ago. Now those people are saying NFTs I'm willing are to say fad. I'm willing to say Bitcoin's a fad though. Yeah. I'll say Bitcoin's a fad because it's not clear to me that this is a, a payment system or a store of value. Like maybe I, I actually think, I'm, I'm maybe, I hate to say it, I'm almost like an Ethereum maximalist compared to the Bitcoin maximalists because Ethereum actually has value. I can't make anything without Ethereum. Theoretically, I can use Bitcoin, but that hasn't happened. Ethereum's the winner there. I agree with you, but I could make the claim that Bitcoin still hasn't reached a tipping point yet. Yeah, and I think we're going to need to see uh, developers build different ways for average people to interact with this technology that abstracts away a lot of the complexity because there's still too much complexity there's too much technical jargon. There's too much to be scared of, right? Like this idea that as much as I believe in a key-based custody model where you can hold all your assets and you don't need to go through a bank or a financial institution to use them, that's not going to scale from my mom. Right? My mom's not going to like generate a private key and back up her seed phrase and be like, okay, my life savings. Is She's not, not going to get MetaMask as her right. wallet. <laughs> yes, no, exactly. Um, so we're going to need companies actually, centralized, traditional companies to figure out how to abstract away all this complexity. And we're seeing some early signs of that. And then we need to see more viable applications that transcend the financial. And something like that LVMH example, right? Like with things and products where provenance and ownership matters. Once you abstract away the complexity and say that, hey, uh, every luxury good out there now has some kind of a chip embedded in it and all you need to do is download a simple app and use the near field communication in your smartphone, hold it near the bag, it will tell you if it's authentic or not. No MetaMask, no private keys. The infrastructure we've been talking about this whole hour is fundamental to that working. It's just like, if I need to send a text message, I don't think about how the different web servers and data centers and wireless you know, Verizon antennas work. I just send a text message. We're still a long way away from where using blockchain-enabled solutions have that level of user-friendliness. Yeah, so it's the user-friendliness. What else? Figuring out more new models that make sense. So one of the ideas that we discussed the last time I was on here and I explore a lot in the book is like, can we decentralize platforms like Uber or Twitter? Uh, and there are many good reasons to want to do that just because I think the one thing we can all agree on is trust is fairly low in these centralized solutions. However, I know many people who have been trying to build something like decentralized social media and none of them have gained significant traction, not even close. That could mean they haven't figured out the usage model. They haven't figured out the token model. It could also mean that society is not quite ready yet. Yeah, I think, I think, I mean, we discussed this last time. I think a big problem there is they're too focused on the money and not the tool. Mm. Like nobody, nobody used Instagram because they could monetize it. People used it because, oh, here's a nifty place. I can not only store photos, but use filters on my photos. And then the tool showed them, oh, but there's also a social network around this. That's kind of cool. 
And so the tool brought them to the social network. Yeah. And so I, I think, I think the philosophy, there's a philosophy to crypto, just like there's a philosophy to social media, which, you know, crypto has not adopted the philosophy of social media yet is the problem. And that, you know, that, they, they focus so much on the money. Right. And you can extrapolate that to many other things. Like I've had a lot of conversations with people in the gaming industry because there was this hot minute in the last year where some of these blockchain enabled games where the in-game currency is a cryptocurrency and every asset is an NFT. They really took off and there was a lot of a usage and the valuations of the coins and NFTs went sky high. But in conversations with people I know who have worked in the video game industry for years, every one of them said the same thing. They said, none of this is sustainable because these games are not fun. And one of the reasons they're not fun right. is you like got- My kids don't play any of those. Right. And, and sure enough, like volumes have fallen off a cliff and token prices have crashed. And I think this is a point that, and it's hard. It's really hard to make a fun video game, it turns out. It's one of the hardest things to do. It takes years. It takes a lot of money and a lot of people. And then to want to do that with the various uh, blockchain-y accoutrements like NFTs will be even harder. I think people will eventually crack that code, but we're probably nowhere close to it today. You know, one thing that does strike me as creating ease of use is Ethereum, the, the upcoming Ethereum 2.0. Uh, and I think the, the big tension in the entire crypto world, including the price of Bitcoin, but definitely the price of Ethereum, is, is this Ethereum 2.0 just delayed? Is it not going to happen as some people think? Is it really going to make a difference in scalability or fees or, or uh, supply and demand? I think there's a lot of people who either haven't done the research or don't understand but like, what's what's your view on this? I believe Ethereum, the merge to you know, the, the Ethereum 2.0 is actually a misnomer, and the Ethereum Foundation is trying to get away from it. It's not an event, right? It's a series of steps that take years to implement, and they all get delayed. So, um, the things that will happen, I think, the merge to proof of stake will happen. But there is a misconception that that means transaction fees will go down and capacity will go up. Neither of those things will happen. The carbon footprint of Ethereum will go down. And what then happens is the evolution to the next steps in the roadmap with things like layer two solutions and sharding that will then eventually mean transaction fees go down and scale goes up. Well, transaction fees might go down because the cost of mining will go down. Uh, well, the thing with the- There's no electric bill. Um, that's true, actually. There will be no electric bill in proof of stake. However, actually, um, because the Ethereum community is sort of decentralization first, they have opted not to take the kinds of shortcuts that other proof of stake blockchains have to have lower transaction fees. For example, simple thing, what's the size of a block? The simplest way to increase capacity and decrease fees is to make blocks bigger. Now you can cram more transactions into a single block. When you start doing that, though, it's just for various reasons I won't get into, the system becomes more centralized. Bitcoin has decided not to go that route. Ethereum has decided not to go that route. Uh, but most other proof-of-stake blockchains, one of the reasons their transaction fees are a lot lower than Ethereum is because they have gone that route. Uh, yeah, that's interesting. So what about... Um... 
I guess scalability is also affected by the size of the block. But again, you could have like layer two or layer three solutions, which to your point, I guess it's a little more centralized when some other authority takes Ethereum and processes trans transactions differently. So this is going back to the beginning of our conversation. One of the important lessons that comes from the history of trust is that hierarchies are very important in building trust. Right? That's why the government is hierarchical. Court systems are hierarchical. And it's this idea that if you make things into these different layers, then all the people in one layer will trust each other more if they're accountable to a higher layer. And then it goes from there. Right? Mm. So a simple example, right? Like the U.S. court system, you have lower level courts, then there's the appeals court, then there's the Supreme Court. And the judges in the middle, it's like they don't want to get overruled by the Supreme Court. That's what makes them better judges. And then it comes downhill. Um, the entire financial system, whether it's payments, the movement of dollars is extremely hierarchical. Uh, or securities, like how the uh, sausage making of stock trading actually works, um, which I thought was very fascinating, so I wrote about it in the book. It's all very hierarchical. And one of the great ironies is that crypto is going that route with these layer twos, where what you're going to end up happening is, you know, like you and I, if we have a small courts, if we have a, if we have a disagreement over a thousand bucks, we're not going to go to the Supreme Court. Right? We're going to go to small claims court. Um, doing anything on layer one Bitcoin. But then I'm appealing. Right, exactly. Well, if you're unhappy with the results or there is, there is a possibility of corruption, then yeah, you appeal. That's the idea. You have that optionality, which then leads to like a, it's sort of like a disbursement of trust based on how much someone needs it for a particular application. So <clears throat> part of the problem on Ethereum and Bitcoin right now is like they're so secure that you can safely send a billion dollar transaction and not have to think twice about it. The problem is like a lot of people are using them not to send billion dollar transactions, but they're also sending $10 transactions on the same infrastructure as billion dollar transactions. So this is like saying, let's have the Supreme Court look at extreme cases like Roe v. Wade, but then also Omid and James' small claims dispute, right? That's a poor allocation of resources. What layer twos do is introduce a hierarchy where smaller, less valuable transactions that don't need as much security but want cheaper fees will happen on layer twos. And then you know, a thousand small transactions will be batched and netted down into like one recording and that will be written on layer one. But the people that want the assurances of layer one or are actually sending a billion dollars worth of crypto, they'll keep transacting on layer one. Yeah, so, so I guess... What's your prediction? Ethereum, yes or no? Yes, I actually think because it's about trust and the trust has these massive economies of scale. There are these great winner-take-all tendencies with trust that things that are trustworthy become more trustworthy, at least in the short term, and consume more and more users. And this is why like you know, the biggest banks are really, really big. And the biggest social media platforms are really, really big. I think crypto will go that route. So in that sense, I am, I am something of like what people call an Ethereum maxi. I think they're right now like, I don't know, 50 different of these smart contract token platforms. From a trust standpoint, I think it's better if we have one trillion dollar platform someday than 10 hundred billion dollar platforms. So I think there will be Ethereum, there will be many layer twos, and there might be room for like one or two blockchains that are totally different. 
So I guess, first off, to close this, I want to I wanna quote your book. I thought there was this really excellent quote that you quoted from your book from Upton Sinclair, who said that it is difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on his not understanding it. So that applies to like all these pundits and bankers and so on. Like their salary depends on not understanding Ethereum and Bitcoin and crypto and so on. And and I think your book, Rearchitecting Trust, The Curse of History and the Crypto Cure for Money, Markets, and Platforms by Omid Malakhan. So people should look it up, Rearchitecting Trust by Omid Malakhan. I think your book basically explains things in such a way that people no longer have to listen to the people whose salary depends on not explaining this to you. <laughs> so everything is like a negative or a double negative. But Omid, thanks once again for helping me understand crypto a little bit further. I think there's always, no matter how much you know, this is one of those topics where no matter how much you know, there's always room to learn more. And I think it's really important on every level to understand how to simply explain these concepts that are so game changing because they're not going to, they're not going to change the game until they get more simple as we've just been talking about and simply explaining it is the first step in that. So, so I appreciate that you wrote this book and that you've been coming on the podcast to continue explaining it. Thank you very much for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. The learning bit applies to me as much as it does to the audience. And it is through conversations like this that I actually figure out what I don't know and what I need to go and learn. Oh, well, I'll keep asking you questions. So, and if you haven't heard Omid yet on Wall Street Insane, which is Omid, me, and our third wheel, Dan Kelly, talking about the most insane experiences we've ever had on Wall Street in the past 20 years, check that sub-series out on the James Altucher Show. But Omid, once again, author of Rearchitecting Trust, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your Crave. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply.